about the ten beautiful qualities of heart and mind, or the ten virtues. Sometimes they're known as the paramis. And these are the forces of purity in our heart and mind that keep us aligned with our highest potential, that act as a current which can carry us to our destiny of unconditional peace and happiness. So these ten beautiful virtues are generosity, sila or harmonious conduct, harmonious living, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, and resolution. And the last two are loving kindness and equanimity. It is said that wisdom can arise easily from a virtuous heart. And in our own experience, we may see that this is so, that when our hearts and minds are infused with compassion or loving kindness or equanimity, it's very easy to understand deeply. Sometimes we ask at the end of a retreat, how can I continue this practice at home? How can I take this home? And just about this time, there are many questions about how to bridge our retreat life into our home life. Here in a retreat, all of us are very protected uh, by the, the form, by the schedule, by the um, precepts that we take. And so it's easy to cultivate these qualities or these virtues here. We uh, don't have the same kinds of conditions here that we do in our lives, in our community, in our jobs, with our families, the kinds of conditions that really test us and challenge us there are much more intense in a different way than they are here. So going back to our families and to our jobs and to our communities, we may feel a little nervous and not know how to be protected there, how we can carry the same kind of protection. We can bring some kind of conscious intention, some kind of intentionality as we go into our daily lives around looking at these virtues and seeing which ones of them we need to cultivate more, we need to pay more attention to. Because the cultivating of these virtues creates the very fertile soil for wisdom to grow in, for freedom, for peace to grow within. And those seeds that are planted in that soil bear fruit. And so it's possible to become surrounded inwardly and outwardly by these virtues. One way that I envision these virtues are like ten currents that are converging to create one very strong current or steady current 
that carries us easily on our path, these ten qualities of heart and mind. There's an old Chippewa song that goes, Sometimes I go about pitying myself, when all the while I am carried by a great wind across the sky. And this is true, we sometimes feel like we're uh, discouraged by the way we do the practice or our inability to do it. And when we look more closely, we can see that we have some of these great uh, currents that are already carrying us. And they can carry us to great freedom. We sometimes think we need maybe a long monastic training or 10 years of three-month courses (laughs) that we're, if we can't arrange our time that way, then we just can't do it right. And we underestimate or overlook the power of these uh, paramis that we can cultivate right in our daily life. These paramis are very much part of the weaving of the causes and conditions that lead us to liberation. It is said that the effort that the Buddha put forth in his many lifetimes, in his many existences, to perfect these qualities, and he perfected these qualities in all of his lifetimes as a bodhisattva, that all of these, uh, all of this effort to perfect these qualities is called the accomplishment of cause. And so it refers to these paramis as causes for liberation. They were the foundation for the liberation that the Buddha had. And this isn't just limited to someone or a being like a Buddha, these causes can exist and do exist in each of us as human beings. So these causes led to what was called the accomplishment of result. And that accomplishment of result was the great liberation of the Buddha, and which can also be the accomplishment of of result for each one of us as human beings, not just limited to a Buddha. Each one of us has different conditions in our lives, that's pretty obvious. And those conditions are the very ones that we can use for our spiritual understanding to blossom. Those conditions are the very place that we can cultivate all of these virtues, these paramis. No matter what the conditions are, there's always an opportunity to cultivate the good. I think it's been mentioned several times here when the Buddha said, cultivate the good, cultivate the good. If I didn't think you could do it, I wouldn't ask you to cultivate the good. And so, as a way of um, going through these paramis, 
I wanted to tell you some ancient stories that I've just been reading in different um, Pali, the Pali Dictionary of Buddhist Proper Names and some other books that I brought here to read you some uh, verses from that were really inspired me. They were so beautiful. And as I read them, I began to really open my eyes as to the kind of life that um, surrounded the Buddha during the time that he lived. And in that time, there was a lot of treachery, and uh, there was a lot of good things happening, but there was a lot of treachery and deceit and poverty, illness, morbidity, as well as wealth and beauty and ease and um, other great wholesome times. But when I read all the stories and I stayed up nights, I would stay up till one o'clock in the morning sometimes, just entranced by the stories around the time of the Buddha. And um, it really impressed on me that during that time and through those stories that my life seemed like tiddlywinks compared to the time during the Buddha. I'm there, I mean, the soapbox operas on TV really looked benign compared to... <laughs> I wish I could tell you some of the stories, but it, they would shock you to tell you in, in retreat. Um, <laughs> and I don't want to destroy whatever equanimity you have. <laughs> I was I was just really dumbfounded and shocked. And last night I even told Steve, I have to stop this reading all of this because I'm getting really depressed <laughs> by some of his stories. I like stories a lot because I think they entrain our hearts in a different way. I think that um, instruction that comes from understanding things intellectually or more logically are very important and I appreciate that very much because I don't have a logical mind as Steve will tell you. <laughs> um, but stories really entrain our hearts differently. They kind of make an impression on us in a different way and they kind of lift out in a very organic way exactly what we need to understand or know without even the storyteller having any kind of aim at doing that. So it's what I learned so much um, from my own practice and especially there was a time when I practiced here quite a few years ago and I just did metta practice with Upandita for a few months and I, I don't know why, but he um, asked me to report every day. Sometimes, you know, it's every other day. Sometimes it wasn't that often when I practiced with him. But I reported to him every other day, and then he asked me to report to another monk the other day. And all the monk was assigned to do was tell me a metta story. So it was really beautiful, and I, I sometimes didn't understand his English, and and then I thought, well, maybe he was doing that because Upandita was making him practice English on me. 
<laughs> but anyway, I just went and I <laughs> and I did my my three bows, and then I I would sit there and and listen to the to the story that he the meta story that he read me. He he would read a, a book to me, and it was so beautiful. There were so many things that I learned from the stories that I can't even tell you the stories now, but there were so many things that just got lifted out of my heart or that sort of relieved me that I couldn't learn from a Dharma talk or from just the way I, I was reporting to Upandita. So I'd like to go through a few of these before I tell some stories from the text and just tell a few of my own stories because these are pretty ordinary and you know this morning there were questions to Steve and and a lot of times someone like Steve Smith or Steve Armstrong who were both monks um, get a remark or response that oh gee I could never do what you did that was such a great renunciation for a westerner and um, or, you know, we see other people who have done at least 10 three-month retreats. There are, I know are some people here who have a great, um, you know, spiritual resume that way. And we feel like, gee, you can never do that. And so um, I haven't done all of that. And so I just wanted to tell you what I have done in the way of practice, in the way of um, going to retreats, I, I sometimes wonder whether to tell you this or not because <laughs> because I, I, I don't want to break your faith so much in the Dharma. But um, I haven't done a lot of retreats. I practiced mostly at home and I really had to save my time up to do retreats because I, I had to raise uh, children and and have you know a job or two or three during certain times of my life all at once, and it wasn't easy to go off to retreat. And oftentimes, like many of you, to go to retreat, I had to prepare at least a year in advance to get to a retreat. You know, to pay the bills. Um, to make sure that that one month was taken care of or two or three that I was gone or even ten days. And so um, how did I practice at home? So when I first uh, entered upon my spiritual path, I had the good fortune to attend the very first retreat that Manindra taught in America. And he made as I've told my story to many of you before, he made a very great impression on my heart. Just his way of being um, inspired me to, to be like that, to have those particular qualities that he had that were so endearing. And, and he didn't have all wonderful qualities, and neither did Upandita. Um, they, you know, they had, each of them had limitations in, that I could see that were very clear to me. But 
I decided not to waste my time finding fault with my teachers and really look to what they had to offer. Take what they had to offer, take the teaching, and put what their limitations were aside because I didn't have time to waste in finding fault. Um, and I find that this is a great setback on our path when we are like that. Uh, when we let ourselves kind of roll in that mud of finding fault with whoever is giving the teachings. There's a saying, a Burmese saying, even when the bottle's empty, it still has a smell, which means that even if you have purified your heart and mind to some extent, there are still remnants of the personality that come out that our, uh, our teachers can be very stern or very strict or uh, not very adept in speaking lovingly. And uh, even the, the third greatest disciple of the Buddha, Mahakasapa, was uh, said to be quite lacking in those kind of social skills of having being loving when he spoke, so it was difficult for people to listen to him. But those that could really open their hearts and minds great, open deeply and greatly. So learning to use and work with these paramis in my life, in my association and relationship to my teachers was a great help, a help, a great boon for me along the way. And the first one being generosity. And so many of us think about generosity in the way of giving of material goods or our resources or even of our time. But there's something that's very subtle that one can give, one can give up, one can let go of. And this is a very hard one in our, in our lives. And that's letting go of our judgment and opinions. There are many places in our lives when we can do this. Many times when our judgment and opinion of others is um, kind of a, a great veil in seeing clearly, in looking at our own places where we have our limitations. And there are many times when I've had to, especially with my children, work on very hard in a very challenging way, give them the gift of seeing their goodness, even when they were yelling and screaming at me or telling me that uh, I wasn't a good enough mother, believe it or not. I mean, I guess this is how kids are. We know this is how children are. They really test you in many different ways. So giving the gift of seeing their goodness, not overlooking their shortcomings, but really seeing their goodness and letting them know of that goodness. Resolution and renunciation are other things that one has to work on on the spiritual path. Mostly renunciation means the letting go of greed, hatred, and delusion in the deepest sense of that meaning. 
But in a very practical way, there were many times when it was very um, important, it was essential for me to give up my life uh, as a householder for a while and take the time to do a retreat, take the time of seclusion. And that took a lot of preparation to do it. And I had to do it at times when it was in harmony with my family and what was going on with the family. I couldn't just tear myself away when I wanted to. And sometimes there were years of not being able to do retreats, uh, intensive retreat, because I felt that I needed to just be there for the children, even if they didn't think I needed to be there. <laughs> they, but they loved it when I went away, you know. They <laughs> um, but sometimes during particular times when they were growing up, you know, through their adolescent years, I felt like it was good for me to be there, you know, making some dinner or um, just sitting and watching television with them sometimes. Ordinary things like that. I mean, we, I just had a pretty ordinary life. But to do it, to take the times away in great harmony with, with my family. Um, and I didn't, I didn't have a lot of time to spare either. Every moment had to count. And that's what really inspired me to do the practice when I was away at a retreat to really make every moment count. It, it made me um, like a warrior. And I'm not saying that's the way that everyone has to be in their practice. There are times when one has to be really gentle with oneself. And mostly that's how it has to be. But there were times when I went off to practice and, you know, traveled to another country or um, took a long period away where um, I went in to the retreat knowing that from the very moment I entered the retreat and took the precepts and the three refuges, I didn't have any time to waste. That I, I really, um, I didn't wait for them to give the instruction that the time between sitting and walking was actually a practice time. It had to start from the very moment of retreat. Uh, you know, tying my shoes, opening doors, all of those things. And a lot of the mantra that I said to myself or the self-talk that I gave was make every moment count. Be as present with every moment as you can. And so that was the kind of renunciation and resolution that I had to make when I went off to retreat. And there was a lot of patience and loving kindness and equanimity that had to come within that because I really never knew if I would be able to make it again. At the time when I attended my first long retreat with Upandita, just before I went, I was told um, by my doctor through some blood tests that I had lupus. And so that was very scary. And I knew what that meant as far as um, 
you know, my immune system and that I might not have a long time to live. But since my practice, uh, the, that the results of that blood test have shown, the blood tests have shown that it's not at a place anymore that's dangerous. It's kind of at the baseline or something like that. So I wanted to make sure to say that because everybody gets worried that I'm <laughs> uh, going to die pretty soon, which I might, but, uh, you know, I, it's not a very, it's, that's not very serious right now in my life. But when I first went off to a retreat, I, it was, um, I had that kind of, uh, resolution to really make every moment count and so it was at that that long very first it was a month-long retreat with Upandita that um, there was a, a, a kind of a really deep understanding that came of the Dhamma that was uh, very life transforming for me and I had never attended a retreat of that length and um, I just entrusted myself to the Dhamma at that time and did the best I could. And so when I went home after that, you know, I did my best to sit every day and a lot of patience and equanimity had to come from that because I was raising four children at the time. And part of the time, I was a single parent. Um, and so I would just get up every morning and do as much sitting practice as I could. But my home life, my being a mother, had to be just as important as being a meditator. So I would sit up in my bed. I didn't have a beautiful altar and sitting place to sit at, as you might imagine a teacher would have, um, or somebody as dedicated as you might think I am to have. I sat up in my messy bed, and <laughs> mostly because in Hawaii there's uh, centipedes on the ground, so we don't <laughs> sit on the ground. <laughs> um, and so sat on the bed, and when the children would come in as I was sitting every morning. They'd come in one by one, all four of them, to say goodbye and to tell me whatever they had to tell me, uh, happy or sad or angry or whatever, or where's my lunch money or sign this note, um, or can I go out tonight? And, um, you know, the, the daughter I saw coming in the previous night who had alcohol on her breath, where did you go, you know, in the middle of the sitting, and are you all right? And Yeah, I'm all right. Okay, we'll talk about it later. You know, just, and that, that was my life. It was no, you know, it wasn't any <laughs> special thing. But that's what I did. And so all of those paramis got developed on, on that, in that family, in that, home in that community and um, and they continue to be developed it's not something that you know we're done with it said that yes in a Buddha those paramis are totally perfected but even as we as spiritual um, uh, 
beings that are opening on the path. And even though we have opened to some degree and purified our hearts to some degree, even the first path of the first uh, path of enlightenment, the second path, the third path, each of those, because we open in stages, there are certain stages of purification that happen. In each of those, one purifies one's heart more deeply. And so one can have um, opened one's heart and have been purified to some degree in this, whatever enlightenment is called, is means. Um, but one may still have residues of greed, hatred, and delusion. So it's not so, it, it, it isn't so uh, skillful to judge you know, others, um, and one, there doesn't have to be a perfect teacher. Manindra used to always say to me that a perfect rose can come from an imperfect giver. And so to, you know, to accept the teaching and leave our opinions of the teacher aside. So a few stories of that'll overlap, a few stories about these paramis, um, that were really interesting for me to, to learn about more deeply. I'd heard about them in all these years that I've been practicing. But a wonderful book has come out as when you were sitting about these, the great disciples of the Buddha, their lives, their works, and their legacy. And so I was given this as a gift lately, and so I've been looking, reading that, and um, also some other texts. So the first one, uh, about generosity. And uh, the Buddha declared a certain person during his lifetime to be the foremost patron of the Sangha. The Sangha meaning that group of monks and nuns who went forth to practice, to um, dedicate their lives fully to the opening of their hearts. And this person that the Buddha was talking about was named Anapindika. Anapindika. And I always heard this in, in, you know, when you read the suttas, a lot of the suttas begin this way. Thus I have heard, on one occasion the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jetavana, the monastery of Anapindika. Uh, when I read that, my heart just... Um, swells with, you know, I never knew what, what I knew that Anapindika had offered some land and some dwelling places, but even not knowing this person, you know, and 2,500 years ago, always feel a great deal of mudita for, for that. So in the beginning, the bhikkhus or the monks of the Buddha didn't have a place to practice uh, in a shelter, in a constructed shelter. They practiced anywhere they could, at the, um, in the woods, at the foot of trees. They practiced in charnel grounds. They practiced uh, in caves and in rock formations. And not long after the the Buddha began teaching, there was a wealthy merchant in the area 
that the Buddha was teaching and that offered uh, some uh, places of dwelling for the monks. In fact, he offered like 60 dwelling places and uh, a place where the monks could gather. And so he did this because it was a way of accruing merit. And uh, there is that belief, that understanding that when you give, when you, um, when you exercise that amount of letting go, there's a great deal of merit that is accrued to your, your own heart and mind. And so this person had a brother-in-law who was the richest merchant in an area called Savati. And that brother-in-law was named Anapindika. And so one day Anapindika was visiting his brother, his brother-in-law, who had given this, uh, these kutis or these shelters to the monks. And the brother-in-law was busily preparing for uh, a meal to be offered. And so he was busily preparing the meal with a great deal of enthusiasm and happiness in his heart. And so Anapindika was visiting him at that time and he said, why, why are you so happy? Why are you so excited? And uh, so his brother-in-law said to him, a great being and his bhikkhus are coming uh, to visit. And this being is a enlightened being, a fully enlightened one. And so even the sound of the words, fully enlightened one, were so wonderful for Anapindika to hear that he got excited himself just by the sound of those words. So he asked his brother-in-law, could I see this person? Could I visit this person and have an audience with this person myself? And so he was told that he could go the following morning. And so Anattapindika was very excited when he went to sleep that night. And he couldn't sleep. It said in the story that he woke up three times in the night and he and the third time he couldn't go back to sleep and it was almost dawn. So he decided to go out uh, and start walking in the forest. So when he was walking in the forest, the forest was very, very dark. And uh, it was very scary to walk in the darkness at that time. And it was going to be some hours before the sun rose. So as he was walking there, he became very fearful of the dark and he didn't want to go on. He wanted to turn back. But at that time, someone in, in another realm, in, a, in another heavenly realm, uh, noticed what was happening to Anattapindika, that he was on his way to this great enlightened being, to the Buddha, and he was on his way to really the greatest moment of his life and he was going to turn back. So this heavenly being interceded and came down to the dark forest. And the heavenly beings in in the stories were known to have great light. And so when they came, uh, especially when they came to listen to the to the discourses of the Buddha, it's always said that, and a great light uh, came upon the grove, 
and the Buddha had to wait, would have to wait for the heavenly being to kind of make himself um, visible. And so anyway, this great light came upon the grove and it shone upon the Anattabhika. And the great being made himself known. And uh, as the as Anattapindika was turning back, he said, don't go back, don't go back, go forth. Go forth, continue to go forth. And uh, Anattapindika said, no, I'm afraid. I'm afraid to keep going. But the great being, the heavenly being said, no, please go, go forth. It will be to your benefit, go forth. And so it was because of that, that Anattapindika went forth. He did not turn back because of fear. And so as he drew near to where the Buddha was staying, he heard a melodious voice. And the voice said, Come, Sudatta, come. Come closer. And he was surprised because no one in the area really knew that that was his family name, Sudatta. People called him Anattapindika, that was sort of his nickname. It, Anattapindika means giver of alms. And so the melodious voice said, uh, Come, Sudatta, come. And so he was drawn forth by this great melodious voice. And as he went closer, he saw a being that was walking in the, in the, um, the mist. And this being was walking back and forth, walking back and forth, very peacefully. And so this was the Buddha doing walking meditation. And so Anattapindika went forth to him. He drew closer. And he was so overwhelmed by the presence, the noble presence of this being, that uh, he, he didn't know what to do, and he kind of just fell down to the ground. And he fell to the feet of the Blessed One. And he was so kind of dumbfounded and awestruck and tongue-tied, he couldn't think of anything to say. So what he did say was, did the Blessed One sleep well last night? <laughs> uh, and he was kind of, you know, um, remorseful that he didn't think of anything more gracious to say to him. And so the Buddha gave Anattapindika at that time in his answer, he gave him a glimpse of his inner life. And these were the words of the Buddha. This is an, uh, an excerpt. I'm not saying it all, but an excerpt of the words of the Buddha in response to him. And the Buddha never said I as he referred to himself. He always referred to himself as he, the Tathagatha, he. So he said, always indeed the Tathagatha, the Tathagatha sleeps well. The Brahman who is fully quenched, cool at heart. The peaceful one indeed sleeps well, for he has attained peace of mind. And then after that, he spoke to Anapindika. He gave him the teachings of the three pillars of the Dharma. He gave him the teachings of dana, or generosity, virtue, or um, 
harmonious living and the benefits of renunciation or wisdom. And when he saw that Anattapindika was ready, when he saw that his heart and mind were uplifted and his heart was soft and his countenance was serene, then the Buddha gave him the discourse on the Four Noble Truths. And upon giving him of that discourse, Anattapindika realized the first, the first path of awakening he was enlightened. And so the Buddha invited him to a meal. And in that meal, at that time, Anattapindika offered to the Buddha the construction of a monastery, um, a greater monastery than what his brother-in-law had offered. And the Buddha answered at that time, the enlightened ones love peaceful places. And so that was his way of accepting the gift of completing his offer. And so through a series of um, talks with the prince, the son of the king at that time who owned a grove, the prince was called Jetta. And uh, that's why you hear this uh, Jetavana's Grove, the grove where the first great monastery of the Buddha was built in um, Jetavana's Grove. And it is said in the, in the stories that in order to purchase that grove, they had to go through some kind of arbitrator because the prince wouldn't give it up. But finally an agreement was made and uh, Anattapindika had to bring in tons of gold coins and the, um, the grove was purchased for all the coins that could lay side by side in that grove. And that's how much he gave. And he also gave um, many other things. He built more cottages, a meeting hall, lotus ponds and uh, bathing places, an enormous sum of uh, his wealth was given until <clears throat> he gave really everything up. And eventually giving everything up to the Sangha, eventually he totally let go and he was fully enlightened. So that's the story of Anattapindika, very beautiful story of generosity. The second, um, the second story has to do with morality or harmonious living. And there's a really gruesome story about a man called Angulimala in the stories uh, around the Buddhist time. It's a dramatic story of the transformation of a serial killer into an enlightened being, a fully enlightened being. And it also tells about um, if what even now exists in, in many Buddhist places, in many Buddhist lands. 
this person who was a serial killer transformed into a fully enlightened being is looked to as a patron saint of pregnant women. So it's a really interesting story that kind of brings together morality and also truthfulness. So first about morality. The Buddha often warned his disciples not to judge others on the basis of external behavior because the Buddha taught to look to the, the highest potential of that being because if we can look to the highest potential of that being, then we can see that also in ourselves. And so he tells this story often. He tells this um, uh, kind of virtue often of looking to the highest potential of someone in connection with this story of Angulimala. When Angulimala was born, he didn't have that name. His parents gave him the name of Ahimsika, which means harmless. And they gave him that name because when he was born, the um, people who did the astrology or the, or the astrology prophecies of that time told them that this son that was born to them at this time had the propensity for great crime, for morbid crimes. And so they named him Ahimsika, and hopefully to ward off that propensity. And so for a time it was warded off. He grew up and he was a very loving child and he went to a, a college, a great college university nearby and took up um, some great study. And he had a wonderful teacher that he considered his guru at that time. He greatly venerated this man, and he became the top student of the university and the favorite of this man. And he had um, very, very wonderful qualities that he uh, exposed to all around him at that time. And so what happened was there were many students that grew very jealous envious of him and wanted to bring him down, wanted to destroy him, that, because that's what jealousy does. Jealousy wants to destroy someone else so that we shine. And so what these other students did was they convinced his teacher that Ahimsika was plotting against him to actually destroy him and kill him. So his teacher believed it, and the teacher grew very, very fear fearful. And so after he was leaving him, the teacher was, le uh, the student was leaving him, uh, the student said, what can I do to, to repay you for all that you've given me? And so the teacher, uh, having heard this from the other students and being very fearful and wanting to protect his life, said, I want you to go out and as homage to me, you must bring me 1,000 human uh, fingers, little fingers from the right hand. He was very precise. And the, the student, not understanding, being very confused and feeling 
um, this great, um, you know, kind of blind um, faith with his teacher. He went out and proceeded to do that. And the whole area was very, very uh, fearful of him. And so he, what he did was he lived in this certain forest where that's, he went about to attain that goal of uh, getting all of these fingers. And so he did. And um, I'm not telling you the whole story because <laughs> it's so gruesome. But uh, when, the <laughs> when the fingers were, were just bones, he would uh, put them around his neck as a garland. And so Angulimala means finger garland because they were threaded around his uh, neck as a garland. And so he got 999 of them and he only needed one more. And so his mother had heard of this, of course, and she at Finally, she said, I'm going to my son, and I'm going to convince him. He, he will listen to me because I'm his mother, and he won't hurt me because I'm his mother. And so he was go, she was going to see his son at the very time when he needed the, one, the, the last finger, and he could attain his goal. And so the Buddha in his omniscient eye saw this. And so he said, oh, this mustn't happen because matricide, the killing of a mother, is one of the things that is really bad karma. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't think anybody will um, ask me a question about that tomorrow. So, so the Buddha was saw this and rushed to, to that place where he saw the mother was walking and Angulimala was about to um, kill his mother. And the Angulimala didn't care. He was going to kill his mother to attain his goal. But then the Buddha interceded and so uh, Angulimala saw the Buddha and so he said, ah, instead of my mother, I'll take this this monk, this bhikkhu. And so um, Angulimala saw him and went after him. And so the Buddha created this kind of a miracle at that time. So I just want to read from the text um, what was said at that time because it's so, so poignant. I can find it. Oh, give me some time. I wrote down the wrong page. Angulimala then took up his sword and shield, buckled on his bow and quiver, and followed close behind the Blessed One. Then the Blessed One performed such a feat of supernormal power that the bandit Angulimala, 
though walking as fast as he could, could not catch up with the Blessed One, who was walking at his normal pace. Then the abandoned Angulimala thought, It is marvelous. It is wonderful. Formerly I could catch up even with a swift elephant and seize it. I could catch up even with a swift horse and seize it. I could catch up even with a swift chariot and seize it. Even with a swift deer. But now, though I am running as fast as I can, I cannot catch up with this recluse who is walking at his normal pace. He stopped and called out to the Blessed One, Stop, recluse, stop recluse. So the Blessed One turned around and said, I have stopped, Angulimala. You stop too. Then the bandit Angulimala thought, those recluses following followers of the Sakyan speak truth, assert truth, but though this recluse is walking, yet he says, I have stopped. Suppose I question him as to what he means. Then he addressed the Blessed One in this way. While you are walking, recluse, you tell me you have stopped. But now, when I have stopped, you say, I have not stopped. I ask you now, what is the meaning of it? How is it that you have stopped and I have not? And then the Blessed One replied, Angulimala, I have stopped forever. I abstain from violence towards living beings, but you have no restraint towards things that breathe. So that is why I have stopped and you have not. So when Angulimala heard these words, a second and greater change of heart came over him. It suppressed the current of his morbid uh, ways and the pure and noble urges broke through the dam of his hardened cruelty. And so upon listening to the Blessed One, he became fully enlightened. <laughs> I think the stories always end that way. <laughs> but it really impressed upon me how someone with that state of mind could become fully enlightened just like that, just like that. It, you know, I, I just always had a, felt, a, a feeling that was true, even when I wasn't on the path, because um, on this path, when I, when I was a practicing Catholic, there's this one phrase that, that, is, that was said to me that was always, um, that always impressed me, and it was a phrase that was said during Holy Communion, but only say the word and I shall be healed. So it's just, it just takes a moment of letting go. So how Angulimala became the patron saint, so to speak, of, um, of women in labor is at one time after he became a bhikkhu, he was on alms round and he heard a woman in labor, great labor, and uh, giving birth to a child. And so um, 
he didn't know what to do. It, 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 he, it pained him greatly. So he went to the Buddha and told the Buddha of this. And the Buddha said, you can help. You can help this uh, um, women who are in that uh, situation. And it was questioned at that time as to why the Buddha gave him some kind of formula in which he could help the um, women who were in labor, who were in great pain at that time. And it is, um, it is thought that because even after he became enlightened, uh, Angulimala was uh, looked down upon by much of the community because of his past. And there were even times when he was beaten um, as a monk. And so uh, this was after his enlightenment. And so the Buddha wanted him to um, perform in some way some kind of miracle so that the community would then have some faith in him, would turn um, their opinion of him. And so that what the Buddha said to tell him, what the Buddha told him was to go to uh, a woman who was in labor and having great labor pains and tell the woman that, um, sister, I can help you. And to say these words, and the words have to do with truthfulness. It has to do with what is called servitations of truth. And so uh, the Buddha said this to say, um, Sister, since my birth, I do not recall any intention of hurting another being. By this truth, may you be well, and may your infant be safe. And so Angulimala said, that's not true, but because I have hurt many beings. And so he said, then you must say it more precisely. Sister, since I was born with a noble birth, and that means the time of his enlightenment, that noble birth. Since I was born of a noble birth, I do not recall any intention of hurting another being. By this truth, may you be well, and may your infant be safe. And so it is said that when we say a truth like this, when we make an asservitation by this, followed by some kind of wish, if this truth is really true, if this is really great, then that, that wish or that aim or that intention will come about. And so that's what happened as he went to the places where women were giving birth. First one woman trusted him and then another and then another. And he would be in a place nearby and make these asservitations. And it said that the women would go through, the, through labor with little or no pain, and their children would be safe. And so this is how he came to be trusted again 
by his community because of the Buddha's um, way of seeing that that could happen. So I have a, a few more stories. Do you have energy? <laughs> um, because this one has to do with a woman. <laughs> and this one has to do with wisdom and um, the cultivation of wisdom. In the time of the Buddha when he had um, the order of the bhikkhunis or the, ma or the nuns, he named two women as his foremost nuns. And those two women were Upalavana and Kema. And Upalavama was known for her psychic powers. And Kema was known for her wisdom. Kema is a Pali word that means security. Um, it's a synonym for Nibbana. So this is an interesting story because she was born of a royal family and she was a very, very beautiful woman. And she became the, the chief consort to the king at that time. Do you want to change position? Put your knees up or something? <laughs> Stand up. Um, so she was a chief consort of King Bimbisara at that time, who donated a bamboo grove to the, the monks and nuns. Extremely beautiful. She resisted seeing the Buddha because the Buddha, um, she, she thought that the Buddha might not speak well of her beauty uh, and her vanity and might find fault with it or embarrass her in some way. So she didn't go to hear the Buddha speaking. But her, the king played a trick on her once and told her that there would be some beautiful music in that grove and invited her to come. And because she was a lover of beauty, she went. And um, so she, at that time, the Buddha was giving a discourse. And so the Buddha knew that Kema was going to be there. And so he thought that he would open the, the eye of wisdom of this beautiful woman, this uh, chief courtesan of the king at that time. And so what he did was he made the image of a deva be beside him as he gave the discourse woman, much more beautiful than Kema. And so Kema would look at this woman and say, I've never seen a woman so beautiful. And so in a short period of time, in an hour long time perhaps, as the Buddha was giving this discourse, this extremely, exceptionally beautiful Deva woman changed from youth to middle age to old age, to having broken teeth, gray hair, sagging skin, to being ill, to falling to the ground and dying. And so in the Buddha's, um, in the Buddha's quiet, uh, silent way, he said a verse to Kema 
that, the, that Kema could only hear. He said a verse about impermanence. And she became enlightened <laughs> on the spot. <laughs> and so this was uh, the story of Kema. She had a son with this king. And part of her virtue was equanimity. And this son was poisoned by a snake. And um, at the time of his death, this is the verse that she uttered. It's a good thing Steve isn't here. One day, Kema's only son was suddenly killed by the bite of a poisonous snake. Yet she was able to keep total equanimity, and she uttered this verse. Uncalled, he hither came in this life, unbidden soon to go. Even as he came, he went. What cause is here for woe? No friend's lament can touch the ashes of the dead. Why should I grieve? He fares the way he had to tread. Though I should fast and weep, how would it profit me? My kith and kin, alas, would more unhappy be. No friend's lament can touch the ashes of the dead. Why should I grieve? He fares the way he had to tread. Really, the stories have been so inspiring to me to read, and I hope that um, you'll read them someday. The last one has to do with energy, the last one that I'll tell. And that has to do with this nun, became a nun. Her name was Fadasi. She was the nurse of Mahapachapati, who was a stepmother of the Buddha. As many of you know, the mother of the Buddha died after seven days after the Buddha was given birth to. And so the sister of, the, of his mother was named Pajapati. And so she cared for the Buddha and became his mother. And so Pajapati at one time became head of the order of nuns which is a whole another beautiful story. She renounced the world and went off to become a nun. And she, um, she, be, she uh, started the uh, bhikkhuni order. And so after she became a nun, Vidasi, her nurse, also became one of the first 500 nuns. Her persistence in um, doing the practice through many years of feeling that she was an utter failure, a miserable failure in meditation. So to make a long story short, she spent uh, 25 years, it is said, in uh, doing her practice, her meditative practice, and she felt like she failed. And then came the time when it was her time when the fruit had ripened, when all of those paramis 
had ripened. And so this is what she wrote. These were the words of Vedasi. It was 25 years since I left home, and I hadn't had a moment's peace. Uneasy at heart, steeped in longing for pleasure, I held out my arms and cried out as I entered the monastery. I went to a nun I thought I could trust. She taught me the Dhamma, the elements of body and mind, the nature of perception and earth, water, fire, and wind. I heard her words and sat down beside her. Now I have entered the six realms of sacred knowledge. I know I have lived before. The eye of heaven is pure, and I know the minds of others. I have great magic powers and have annihilated all the obsessions of the mind. The Buddha's teaching has been done. So those are the stories about developing those paramis in our hearts. But we have our own stories, and they're not really so different, whether we're householder or we go off to a nunnery or a monastery. And either way, we can attain that place of unconditioned peace. It's really not as far away as we think. It's a moment away if our faith is deep and unconditioned. And if the paramis are cultivated and um, purified. So let's sit for a moment and let the words dissolve. <clears throat> 